Get the unmissable news stories of the day. This is the Beijing Hour. Examining the events that impact and shape China and the rest of the world. This is the Beijing Hour, one hour of news and information brought to you every weekday. Now here's your host. Shane Begum with you on this Friday, October the 6th, 2023. You're listening to a special holiday edition of the Beijing Hour, coming to you live from the Chinese capital. On today's program, a drone attack in central Syria has killed 90 and injured hundreds of others. China's taken gold in the swimming marathon event at the Hangzhou Asian Games. And online shopping is booming in China and especially in the evening hours. Coming up in the second half of the program, we have more episodes of our Stories of Xi Jinping podcast series. Now, checking the day's top stories. Around 90 people are dead, over 270 others injured after a drone attack in the central Syrian city of Homs. Officials say the attack took place during a graduation ceremony at a military academy. The victims included dozens of women and children. Uh, Zara Alderzi has details. The Syrian Defense Ministry issued uh, a statement following uh, the attack. In that statement, it accused uh, what it called uh, terrorist uh, groups that are backed by international forces, and it uh, vowed uh, to revenge for uh, these uh, attacks. Uh, later, the Syrian army targeted uh, the rebel-held areas in northwestern uh, uh, Syria. Uh, the information uh, are about uh, that the Syrian army is targeting the, basically uh, the Islamic uh, Turkestan party positions uh, in Ariha, in Benish, in Sermin, in Idlib, uh, which are uh, in the uh, province of Idlib, as the Syrian army uh, has uh, information that this uh, group uh, had uh, received drones uh, lately. That was Zara Alderzi reporting. The Pentagon's confirmed that U.S. warplanes shot down an armed Turkish drone in Syria. Washington says the drone flew less than half a kilometer from U.S. troops, but added there's no indication that Turkey was intentionally targeting U.S. forces. Ankara has denied the drone belonged to its army, but did not say whose property it was. Turkey has carried out a series of air raids in the Kurdish-held northern region of Syria in retaliation for a bomb blast in Ankara last weekend. The Kurdistan Workers' Party's claim responsibility for that attack. Ukrainian authorities say at least 51 people have been killed after a Russian missile struck a cafe and grocery store in the Kharkiv region. The assault came after Moscow said its air defenses shot down 31 Ukrainian drones in a nighttime attack on border regions. Media reports say the drone attack is Kyiv's largest single cross-border drone assault reported by Moscow. Megumi Lim has more. This is the deadliest attack on the Kharkiv region since the Russia-Ukraine conflict began with one of the highest civilian death tolls. The missile struck a cafe and a shop in Hroza, a village of only a few hundred people in the Kupiansk area of the Kharkiv region, which was occupied by Russian forces for several months last year. Around 60 people were reportedly gathering in the cafe to remember a local resident who had recently died. Images circulating on social media showed bodies strewn on the ground and buildings reduced to rubble. A regional official said initial information suggests an Iskander ballistic missile was used. Meanwhile, President Vladimir Putin has reiterated that Russia didn't start the conflict in Ukraine. And he insisted that he wasn't interested in conquering territories. 
Giving a speech in the Black Sea city of Sochi, President Putin said that Russia is aiming to create a new world and accused the West of trying to hold on to global hegemony. That was Megumi Lim in Kiev. Healthcare workers in the United States are staging their largest ever strike in recent history. Uh, tens of thousands of employees from one of the nation's largest nonprofit health systems walked off the job on Wednesday in a three day strike. The strike started after workers at Kaiser Permanente failed to reach a new labor contract with their employer. The majority of the strikers are in California, where the company is based, and patients have been warned about potential delays. Edith Tian Shen reports. Licensed vocational nurses, home health aides, as well as technicians. More than 75,000 unionized healthcare workers have walked out of their jobs at Kaiser Permanente, one of the prominent healthcare providers across the United States. But this state is very expensive. I love where I'm from. I love my community. I love to be a, a part of this community. However, the going rate of a one-bedroom is $2,200. That, 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 is, that is ridiculous, okay? We all commute. We can't live right here in West LA. Strikers say the proposed pay raise of 6% is just to keep up with inflation. But it's also about working conditions and the number of patients they're being asked to care for. You know, there's, there's a burnout that happens. You can only do that for so many days, have these crazy busy days where you're just nonstop going, 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 you know. <laughs> trying to use the restroom and get all your water in and and still keep up with with patients and the other thing is that the patients don't get the care that they need you know the strikes come at a time when many healthcare workers were burdened with the COVID-19 pandemic while facing the pressure of rising costs of living and they're not alone. 2023 has been defined by union actions with major strikes staged by various sectors. School workers, teachers, nurses, hotel workers, fast food workers, port workers, auto workers, Hollywood actors and writers are just some of the unions that called on their members to hold the picket lines to negotiate a better contract. And some of the success stories have encouraged others to follow suit. Kaiser officials are seeking to outsource healthcare personnel to fill in some of the positions for now, while they warned patients that some non-urgent procedures may be postponed. Negotiations with the union representatives have made no progress so far. We're committed to paying fair wages, but at the same time we know there's an affordability crisis in healthcare. We've got to balance that to make sure we're good stewards of our members' dollars. It's unclear how long the negotiations could last. But America's largest healthcare worker strike comes in a year filled with so many heated labor disputes, signaling high demand for change. That was Edith Tianshen reporting. Members of the European Union have agreed on a landmark deal on how to handle the ongoing refugee crisis. The new agreement will relocate asylum seekers evenly across the bloc, with frontline member states allowed to detain them longer if needed. Alex Cadier explains. This deal has been eight years in the making, eight years of painstaking negotiation over the EU's most contentious issue. This new migration pact is designed to help the Union deal with large-scale refugee crises and was drawn up in the wake of the 2015 influx triggered by the civil wars in Libya and Syria. Under the new rules, the EU will aim to relocate at least 30,000 migrants every year, most likely moving them from frontline countries like Italy and Greece to countries which have had less of a burden to shoulder. Member states can refuse this relocation, but have to pay 20,000 euros per refused migrant 
in compensation. Germany had been blocking these proposals in the latest round of negotiations. Members of the German coalition government did not agree with new rules in the plan which allow border agencies to lock migrants up in detention centers for up to 40 weeks as they process asylum claims during crises. When Germany lifted its objection, Italy blocked the process when it disagreed with language about the NGOs which rescue migrants in the Mediterranean Sea and often bring them to Italian shores. Now, at long last, a majority of EU countries, including Italy, are now on board. And while Poland and Hungary still vehemently oppose this plan, it can now move forward through the legislative process. Now, despite this agreement, that process will still take around two years, including negotiations with the European Parliament and full implementation. That was Alex Cadier on the EU's New Deal to deal with the refugee crisis. Coming up, the latest action in Team China's performance at the Hangzhou Asian Games. Sideline Story brings you all things sports-related. The hottest topics, latest events, juiciest stories, all with a very personal take. Subscribe to Sideline Story Podcast for heated sports discussions covering events that are happening in China and around the world. Wu Shutong of China has clinched the gold medal in the women's marathon swimming at the Hangzhou Asian Games. She clocked in at 2 hours, 3 minutes, and 36 seconds. It's the 10-kilometer event's first time at the Asiad. Uh, Airi Abini of Japan uh, and Sun Jiaqe of China finished second and third. In the meantime, the semifinals of all five badminton categories took place on Friday. And with more, uh, Brandon Yates joins us on the line. Well, good evening, Brandon. And uh, first up, uh, that badminton action, it's into the final stage of competition. So uh, how were the Chinese shuttlers looking? Hi, Shane. Yeah, there were some mixed results for Team China in the semifinal action across different events. First, Li Shifang totally dominated his men's singles match against Indian ace Pranoy HS. Li has shown some hot form this time in Hangzhou, and it looks like he is able to cover every inch of the court and attack at will in every match he has played so far. It started from the men's team event final where China was on the brink of loss facing a 2-0 deficit and Li Shifang stepped up to initiate the comeback efforts by winning his singles match. It obviously boosted his confidence for his following singles action. In the semifinal on Friday, Li totally controlled the pace and kept striking accurate shots and Pranoy made too many unforced errors, so it was a lopsided victory for Li Shifang. Earlier in the day, China's Herbing Jiao got knocked out by world number one An Se-Yuang of South Korea in the women's singles. Herbing Jiao did her best, but it seems like at this point no one can stop An from claiming the championship. She has been dominant for the majority of the season. Other than that, Team China has also two pairs go into the women's doubles and mixed doubles finals. Well, uh, uh, the closing ceremony of the Hangzhou Asian Games will take place uh, on Sunday. So uh, what can you share with us about that? Well, first of all, the digital giant who lit the cauldron at the opening ceremony will be back. He will be at the stadium to witness the Asian Games flame going out together with the spectators and the ceremony performers. The the director of the closing ceremony also says there will be a digital garden illuminated by LED lights on the ground of the stadium where all of the athletes will be able to celebrate the closing of the Asian Games. The volunteers will also join the closing ceremony as a gesture from the organizers to thank them for their contribution to the successful operation of the Games for the past two weeks. The closing ceremony will last approximately 75 minutes, and of course that includes an eight-minute show 
from the next Asian Games host city, which is, of course, Nagoya of Japan. Shane? All right, thank you very much uh, for joining us this evening. That's Brandon Yates reporting from Hangzhou. Uh, the curtain will close on the 19th Asian Games this weekend, and athletes of different delegations say they've enjoyed their stay in Hangzhou during the 16-day competition. Yang Guang has more. The Hangzhou Asian Games have seen over 12,000 athletes compete at the showpiece continental event across 40 sports. For many, the Asian Games are not just about reaching their highest level of competition, but also an occasion to share experience with fellow athletes from different cultures. For Philippine Wushu player Agathe Christensen Won, the Asian Games are like a party of the whole Asia family. I think um, it's all countries coming together and just um, displaying a good show of sportsmanship and camaraderie, and I really enjoyed this year's Asian Games. Having competed in China many times, Wong has formed friendships with many fellow Wushu players in the country. She appreciates the hospitality that Chinese cities display during competitions, and Hangzhou is no exception. Um, I've been to China a lot of times, so it's not really new to me. I think I've been here 10 times now, more than 10, in different parts of China. So I really enjoy you know, the Chinese culture and its people, and I really enjoy their hospitality. 110-meter hurdler An Chen Shan from Singapore says he's impressed with the Hangzhou Olympic Sports Center stadium he competed in and says it reminds him of something bigger. I was very impressed. Exactly like an Olympic venue. Ten lanes, Mondo track, and uh, the colors are beautiful. The design is beautiful. To better accommodate Games participants, Hangzhou set up the Asian Games Village, where all the athletes, media personnel, and technical officials live together. Tennis player Alexandra Iala says it feels great to be around this big community at the Games. I think it's great. Like, you know, this isn't the first time I've stayed in like an athlete's village and stuff. So it's really nice to see all of the other, everyone you're surrounded with is athletes. So um, you can learn so many things and make a lot of friends. And of course, you can compete well. Yeah. 15-year-old Singaporean diver Lee Shen O Max is particularly fond of the food served at the Asian Games. Right, it is my first Asian Games. Well, this is top notch. Like, the, it's top notch. Um, it's my first time um, living in a village in China, and I couldn't expect anything um, less. Also, and I really enjoyed my stay here. Food is good too. There's so many var varieties and um, varieties of food from Chinese, um, European. So I enjoyed it. Yeah. 84-year-old Cambodian Xiangxi player Sok Ten, the oldest athlete of the Hangzhou Asian Games, says it feels like home when he competes in Hangzhou. I've been treated really well here. In a dining hall, we can have Chinese food, and my room in the athletes' village is also organized. The volunteers are amazing. They're always keen to help. This is the most successful sporting event I've ever seen. The Hangzhou Asian Games marked the second big multi-sport international event hosted in China after the pandemic, following the World University Games in Chengdu. Building on the experience from hosting the Asian Games, Hangzhou authorities have expressed their ambition to host another prestigious multi-sport event by 2035. For the Beijing Hour, I'm Yang Guang at the Hangzhou Asian Games. Tourism revenue generated during China's ongoing holiday has exceeded the pre-pandemic level. Figures from China's Ministry of Culture and Tourism show that the sector generated 668 billion yuan over the past seven days, an increase of nearly 133%. The numbers exceeded that of 2019 as well, which stood at 650 billion yuan. Uh, 754 million trips were made in the past seven days, up 7 
79%. The figure is approaching that of 2019, which was $782 billion. Uh, this year's National Day holiday is linked with the traditional mid-autumn festival. The holiday period extends for eight days, lasting from September 29th to October the 6th. A longer holiday has fueled enthusiasm for travel. Many Chinese people hold the view that the leisurely lifestyle in Chengdu is an ideal way of life. During the National Day holiday, a street market in the southwestern Chinese city has attracted many visitors. And Guo Tianxi has more. Chengdu is the city with the most concert houses in China, and here in the most famous bistro commercial street, Yulin, is where many singers made their debut. After years of development, locals of all ages have developed their habit of listening to folk music. This is our third time here, and I love pop music. Our choir has performed pop music on stage too. A lot of old friends also wanted to come. Basically, I'm lazy, so I don't want to, you know, go very far. So this is my neighborhood. Every once in a while, I know there's a market, then I'll come here and drink coffee with my friend. And he is making this coffee something, you know, for a long time. And he wants to make it into a business. So I came here supporting him. If we wander around the street, you can see the light life was great. So many people enjoy the food, hot pot dishes, enjoy the beer. Look around, so many young people, they are starting their business. That's, well, that's great. This folk music season continues for two months all the way until November. And this is the most comfortable season here in Chengdu, accompanied by the live music. The local businesses have gained new opportunities. Many young people's businesses started from small stalls, finding their own way to make a profit with lower cost. Our camper is also a mobile stall, and the flow of people here is good. But the weather is getting cooler in recent days, so the lemon tea business is not very good. So we plan to sell some hot food in the coming days. The beauty of folk music is that it can be enjoyed and appreciated by all, make us reflect and realize that ordinary life is also worth celebrating. That was Guo Tianxi reporting. You're listening to the Beijing Hour. Coming up, online shopping is booming in the evening hours in China. Climate Watch is CGTN Radio's new podcast focusing on the impact of climate change. We have conversations with people on the front line about this critical issue. Listen to Climate Watch on all major podcast platforms and join us in taking action to save the planet we call home. 19 minutes past the hour. As more and more people embrace the convenience of e-commerce platforms, the popularity of online shopping during late hours has skyrocketed in China. Zheng Tao has more. With just a few clicks, customers can browse through a vast array of products from various brands and retailers, compare prices and features, and place orders with ease. The growing awareness among consumers about the benefits of online shopping has boosted the shopping fever, particularly during late hours when traditional brick-and-mortar stores may be closed or less accessible. I need to work most of the day. Before I buy anything, I would compare prices and stuff from different stores, which takes up some time. That's why I usually do my shopping at night. I can check out the reviews by other users to see if the items are worth buying. 
If I'm at a physical store, I can't really know about other customers' shopping experiences. To enhance the shopping experience and encourage customers to stay up late, many e-commerce platforms have introduced innovative features such as round-the-clock customer service, instant delivery options, and personalized product recommendations. Some even offer exclusive deals and discounts, especially for nighttime shoppers, further enticing them to stay up late at night. Many small businesses are leveraging the digital marketing channel to reach out to late-night shoppers. Li Chen often shops at night. She says the rise of live streaming has offered her more convenience. I make most of my purchases in live streaming rooms. The live streamers provide detailed explanations for each item. For example, when it comes to clothing, they even have models showcasing the clothes to potential buyers. Recent statistics reveal that around two thirds of people tend to stay up late at night to shop online. In the meantime, the online nighttime economy has become more diversified, from ordering takeout food and online shopping to even paying an online teammate to play video games together. For the Beijing Hour, this is Jiang Tao. The booming night economy in China is creating job opportunities and helping people of different industries to earn higher incomes. Zhou Feng spoke with some employees and a freelancer about how they've benefited from the latest developments in the country's night economy. Zhang Xiaoyu has been working as a social media manager at Beijing Binshui Leyou Technology for four months. One of the company's major services is putting on light shows on a night cruise along the Liangma River in downtown Beijing. With an increasing number of tourists flocking to the site, its night cruises have become one of the most popular forms of entertainment in the capital. Zhang says one of her main tasks is to use social media platforms to promote their services to a wider audience. We've introduced various themed candlelight concerts and night tours, which have been well received by tourists. We've also extended our operating hours until 11 p.m. to accommodate more visitors. In the future, we will continue to share more fun and interesting themed activities through our official WeChat, Weibo, Douyin accounts, and other media channels. As a former travel editor, being able to work on projects that are unique cultural symbols of Beijing. Something I don't want to miss out on. Xue Yingxue, with 11 years of tourism management experience, has worked at the company as the marketing director for two months. He says he chose to take the position primarily because he thinks night tourism has great potential. I highly value cultural and tourism projects, especially in the area of night tourism. I have a positive outlook on the market development trends and future growth of the company. I am skilled in scenic area planning, marketing, and digital marketing. My main responsibilities include marketing, event planning, promotion, and team building for the Liangma River cruise project. The two new employees have also expressed hope that the company's night cruise services will become even more popular in the future. Meanwhile, freelancers are also benefiting from the increased spending during the night. Self-employed makeup artist Zhu Nana says this year she has received more orders from customers at night in Shanghai. Since Shanghai fully reopened in December last year, I've seen an increasing demand for makeup services. 
Most of the customers order my services in the evening for various gatherings, such as dining with friends, attending wedding banquets, and doing live streaming. In April, I had the opportunity to participate in the cruise night tour of the Pujiang River organized by the Huangpu District and took on the makeup tasks. It was heartwarming to see the faces radiating youthful energy and happiness with my skills. The night economy includes shopping, dining, entertainment, and tours. In 2022, the night economy in China surpassed 42.4 trillion yuan, around 6 trillion U.S. dollars, growing nearly 17 percent over the previous year. For the Beijing Hour, this is Zhou Fang. Home to many culturally distinct ethnic groups, the city of Xining has one of the most vibrant and diverse food scenes in China. Its various night markets are equally loved by locals and tourists. Wang Zhehong takes a look now at how the booming night economy has reshaped life there. The city's bustling food markets are a must-see for any serious visitor. Changzhong District alone boasts over half a dozen of them. And Dashinjie Street is one of the best loved, both among locals and tourists. Mrs. Ma has a small barbecue store in the middle of this 300-meter-long foodie's paradise. Every evening, she can make up to 10,000 yuan by selling lamb skewers and grilled tofu. My parents and I work here together. It's good business. The government is quite supportive, and we got this spot at a fairly reasonable rent. We hope more people will come to Xining to try our local food. Mrs. Sun is one of many who have come to Xining for a family holiday. She's been trying out all kinds of local specialities at the city's night markets. I'm from Shandong on the east coast. We are here on a family trip. The food here is amazing, much better than other cities I've been to. We love the diversity, and I've taken a special liking to the local potatoes. They taste a lot nicer than what we have back home. Sitting at the crossroads between east and west, Xining used to be a major staging post on the ancient Silk Road. The city has since retained a melting pot feel, which is best reflected in the local cuisine: yak yogurt, charcoal grilled lamb and beef, soy sauce braised sheep's trotters. You name it. Now, thanks to China's outstanding transport network, previously unfamiliar ingredients have found their way into the local culinary landscape. Diner Mr. Li is surprised to see so much seafood in Xining. I'm born and bred in Qinghai Province, but this is my first time here in seven or eight years. Xining's night markets have changed a lot. In the past, everything on sale was sheep-related, like sheep's head, sheep's feet, and grilled sheep meat. Now you've got all kinds of options. There's even seafood. It's incredible to have so much seafood in this landlocked city. The weather is cool. It's so nice to enjoy such a brilliant night out with a bunch of friends. The booming night economy has been an important source of income and employment. It has also been pushing different cities to stay competitive by exploring and unlocking their own respective advantages. Professor Wei Xiang at the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences explains. The best kind of night economy facilitates the development of other economic sectors. It's win-win. It should also offer a given place a certain unique edge, something that a place can build upon to stay ahead of the game. For now. It looks like Xining has found that edge. 
and this may well be the secret to its success story. For the Beijing Hour. This is Wang Zihang. Twenty-eight past the hour. Beijing's at twelve degrees this evening. A slight rain and twenty-two tomorrow. Chongqing has moderate rainfall this evening. Seventeen degrees tomorrow's cloudy with a high of twenty-one. Last is down to ten degrees, then sunny and twenty-two. Hong Kong's at twenty-five degrees overnight, then showers and a high of twenty-nine degrees Celsius on Saturday. And that wraps up this special edition of the Beijing Hour. Making news today: a drone attack in central Syria has killed 90 and injured hundreds of others. China's taken gold in the swimming marathon event at the Hangzhou Asian Games. And online shopping is booming in China, and especially in the evening hours. Coming up next, we'll bring you the latest part, or the last part rather, of the stories of Xi Jinping podcast series. And today, we'll get to know Xi Jinping's philosophy regarding talent and how much he treasures talented people in China's development.、Uh, we also hear stories about Xi Jinping as a reader and a writer. On behalf of the staff, this is Shane Bigham in the Chinese capital, hoping you'll join us for the next edition of the Beijing Hour and open a window to the world together. Experience the musical classics of the East. Mingle with the masters of Chinese music. My this kind of beautiful woman. Because Mongol people are called Mongol. Though our languages, cultures, and traditions may differ, we still share one thing in common: we have hope for humanity and the world. General Railway Company Deutsche Bahn. Deutsche Bahn. I love you. 我爱你 This might be the easiest way to say I love you, since there are so many other romantic expressions. No matter if you're a rookie, 你好，我的中文一点点 or a sophisticated learner. 我来北京五年了，我是本地人 There is definitely something that will interest you. Check out Takeaway Chinese, a world that starts with 你好 What kind of people are considered great talent? In Xi Jinping's eyes, the range can be very broad, including people with profound knowledge and great sense of responsibilities, as well as people with exceptional niche or uncommon capabilities. Xi has repeatedly emphasized the need to expand the talent pool and offer great platforms for talent. Back in Zhengding County of Hebei Province in winter of 1983, a dilapidated chicken farm made a very bleak scene. Over 300 commercial chicken houses sat idle with rusty coops. Dry weeds around the chicken houses and in the yard reached people's knees. In freezing cold, Xi Jinping, then secretary of the CPC Zhengding County Committee. 
waded through the weeds to reach the chicken farm with a deep frown on his face. He wondered why such a modern farm could still suffer big losses. After all, the chicken houses were well built and automated to take care of feeding and egg retrieval procedures. After his survey, Xi Jinping realized that the missing ingredient was people with the right expertise. An expert would certainly fix this mess, and an expert was to be found. Chicken farmer Liu Chengyong came into the picture. Liu founded a joint chicken breeding complex and had great sales. Within three years, Liu's business partners grew from 12 to 43 households, and they had trained over 30 outstanding chicken breeders. Liu was rightly nicknamed the Chicken Commander, and his reputation spread far and wide. The day before the Spring Festival in 1984, Liu Chengyong was looking after the 25 chickens he kept at home when he heard a knock on the gate. Liu Chengyong opened the gate and saw Xi Jinping standing in freezing wind with a smile on his face, hands reaching out for a handshake. The two chatted inside. Xi Jinping encouraged Liu to take charge of the county chicken farm, saying he had heard long ago that Liu's hens were the only ones still laying eggs in the freezing weather. Xi Jinping also tried to reassure Liu when he said, "If the chicken farm can make one cent in profit that year, it would be turning the situation around." Encouraged by Xi's words, Liu Chengyong accepted the mission and even made a promise to turn in five thousand yuan in profit by the end of the year. That was Xi Jinping's matchmaking between an expert chicken breeder and a state-owned enterprise on the verge of bankruptcy. But it also stirred up a great deal of controversy. Some said it was pure nonsense that a chicken farmer would become the leader of a state-owned enterprise. Many doubted that a chicken farm could profit. However, Xi Jinping insisted on supporting Liu in his reform and innovation. A few months later, cages of baby chicks pecked out of their shells. By the end of the year, egg production rate at the farm reached 80%. This chicken farm, which had lost 780,000 yuan prior to this, made a profit of more than 60,000 yuan that year. The chicken commander that Xi Jinping had found dragged the state-owned company back from the edge of bankruptcy. Xi Jinping has unique insights when it comes to appointing the right people and unleashing their innovative potential. He proposed that when it comes to urgently needed specialists, exceptional policies should be put in place, rather than demanding perfection or relying solely on seniority or a uniform metric of evaluation. There should be ample working room for individuals with genuine talent and capabilities. Xi Jinping once said that whoever could foster and attract talent would gain an edge in competition. 
In early 1984, letters signed with student Xi Jinping were delivered to more than 100 well-known experts and scholars across China, inviting them to become consultants for Zhengding County. Touched by his sincerity, experts in various fields accepted the invitation. They included mathematician Hua Luogen, economist Yu Guangyuan. And experts in internal combustion engine and automobile engineering, chemistry and chemical engineering, as well as in agronomy, they were the first members of the consultant group to offer advice on the development of Zhengding County. They also catalyzed the training of local talent. Xi Jinping has always had deep respect for talent, as shown in his efforts to engage talent from all walks of life. For the development of the entire country in the past few decades, besides having an open mindset regarding talent, Xi Jinping is also skillful in delegating tasks. He has always encouraged and supported all industries to transform human resources into momentum for high-quality development. Even while working as a junior official, she paid special attention to the role that scientific and technological talent played in the society, and championed them to apply their expertise in social construction. In mid to late 1990s, traditional agriculture was gradually fading away in Nanping City, which was once known as the Granary of Fujian Province. On top of this, old agricultural infrastructure was badly damaged in the summer of 1998 by the biggest flood of the century, further weakening local agricultural production. Xi Jinping arrived in Nanping for the post-disaster reconstruction efforts. After conducting on-site surveys, Xi's prescription for saving the local economy was to rely on scientific and technological progress, and increase labor productivity to transform the local agriculture and rural economy. However, promoting new technology in agriculture was no easy task back then. The city lacked agricultural infrastructure and technical specialists. Local farmers lived far apart, making it hard to organize training. In the face of this challenge, Xi Jinping proposed to bring science and technology to the people instead by sending experts deep into the villages. This was the birth of the SciTech Commissioner system that is still in use today. In February 1999, the first group of 225 agricultural researchers and technicians were dispatched to 215 villages. They soon became stars in the rural villages in northern Fujian Province. These commissioners not just worked but lived in the countryside for a long period of time. They showed farmers agricultural know-hows hand in hand. Helped them solve problems in production and trained a large number of local personnel. They also guided and organized farmers to use modern agricultural technology to improve efficiency and thus their income. Grape planting specialist Xie Fuxing was among the commissioners who went to Nanping City. 
He dedicated nearly 20 years to helping more than 20,000 farmers plant grapes in northern Fujian. The annual output of the local grape industry reached over 600 million yuan as a result. Our goal was to bring hope to agriculture and prosperity to farmers. I think this is also the greatest aspiration of President Xi Jinping. Today, more than 20 years later, sci-tech experts like Xie Fuxing work on farms all over the country, bringing with them new technologies and providing services in rural areas. They have changed the face of villages and improved the lives of farmers. The system has received warm responses from the people. We thank the experts who came to our village from the bottom of our hearts. They showed farmers the power of technology and brought us hope and dreams in a new era. Back then, we didn't know how to manage tea farms properly. In 2018, Professor Liao Hong from Fujian Agriculture and Forestry University led a team of experts and built a 1,000-acre ecological tea farm here. The things Commissioner Liu taught in class were very real and practical and have improved the quality of our tea products. Xi Jinping's respect and appreciation for great talent were also evident in his support for both their work and living conditions. He is committed to creating an inclusive and innovative social atmosphere. On November the 10th of 2000, Xi Jinping came to the Zhangzhou Sports Training Base in Fujian Province. This is the training base of Chinese women's volleyball team. In the early 1980s, Chinese women's volleyball team made history after it won five consecutive titles at the world's top volleyball competitions. Their fighting spirit and resilience inspired a generation of Chinese people who needed confidence and motivation in the early stages of reform and opening up. However, in the 1990s, the Chinese women's volleyball team fell into a trough of underachievement. By the 2000 Sydney Olympic Games, they were still struggling at a low point. At that time, the training base had served the team for nearly 30 years and was already very old. To build a new venue would cost about 9 million yuan. No one knew if the construction plan could be approved. Encouragingly, Xi Jinping made it clear that he would continue to provide support for the team. He said the training base was the pride of Fujian and it was the responsibility of the province to keep it in good shape. Fujian should contribute to the revival of Chinese women's volleyball team. Xi Jinping commented on the thought-provoking trip, saying that as a base for patriotic education, the training venue was supposed to further promote the spirit of the women's volleyball team. It needed to be renovated and improved upon urgently. The team was still at a low point at the moment and it needed the encouragement and support from all sectors of society. After that, the construction of the new venue officially started. In July of 2001, Xi Jinping came again to visit the women's volleyball team. 
Xi Jinping said that the Chinese women's volleyball team was regarded as family by local people of Zhangzhou, and coming back for training should feel like returning home. He commended the team, saying that the Fujian people admire their fighting spirit and strongly believed that they would achieve new glory. He hoped the team could train well in Zhangzhou and achieve great results in the near future. The people of Fujian would always stand at their back. After making the remarks, Xi Jinping did not leave right away, but sat on a small stool by the side of the court and watched the team train. He sat in the sweltering old training hall for over half an hour, his shirt half soaked in sweat. His support and care greatly encouraged the whole team. In the 2003 FIVB Volleyball Women's World Cup, Team China regained world championship after a hiatus of 17 years. In March 2004, the Chinese women's volleyball team moved into a brand new training hall. That August, they won the gold medal in the Athens Olympic Games and once again stood on the highest podium of the Olympic Games after an interlude of 20 years. Training conditions got better and better throughout those two decades, and Xi Jinping's encouragement was always there by their side, giving the team spiritual strength when in face of challenges. He said, people love the Chinese women's volleyball team not only for the championship they won, but more importantly for the patriotic spirit, the power of unity and cooperation, the tenacity, resilience and the perseverance the team had demonstrated on the court. In Xi's opinion, the spirit of the women's volleyball team represents the spirit of the times, and it is the loudest call for a stronger nation. Through decades of governance, Xi Jinping has shown the insight to identify talent, the resource to attract talent, and the decision to use talent. He has also shown sincerity and generosity in respecting and supporting talent. And this has always been his password in galvanizing capable people to lead social and economic development. Xi Jinping loves to read and to write, and is known by many as a leader well-versed in literature. From living in Liangjiahe village to studying in Tsinghua University, from working as a local county official to leading the whole country, reading has always been Xi Jinping's greatest passion and a way of life. Xi Jinping has been an avid reader since his youth. It has become part of people's impression of him. In the 1980s, when working as an official in Zhengding County in North China's Hebei province, Xi Jinping's days were consumed by work from morning till late into the night. But he still dedicated the hours from 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. to quiet reading every day. When he went on inspection tours in rural villages, he wouldn't forget to bring along a few books. One time when he had to be hospitalized, he still brought with him two bags filled with books. 
His fondness for reading is part of his family tradition. He says many of the ancient poems and classics that he can recite today were memorized when he was a child, and these have benefited him all his life. Xi Jinping's parents encouraged him to read from a young age and were quite strict with him. In his childhood, Xi Jinping had to take notes and write about his reflections after reading. His father, Xi Zhongxun, would then note down places that could be improved. Xi Jinping had to revise his writings over and over again until they were good enough. That became somehow a tedious task for him at one point, and sometimes he would spend hours trying to find the right word for his revisions. In 1969, Xi Jinping went to Liangjiahe Village in northwest China's Shanxi Province during a national campaign that sent urban youth to experience life in rural areas. At that time, he was a teenager, not yet 16 years old. In the following few years, on the lowest plateau, Xi Jinping kept in touch with his parents through writing letters. One time, his father marked all the incorrect characters in one of Xi Jinping's letters and enclosed it in his reply. Xi Jinping was very touched by this. Ever since then, he always carried a dictionary with him and made use of every spare minute to study the characters and words. He used to say, "Feeling bad about not knowing much makes him thirst for knowledge." When Xi Jinping described his days in Liangjiahe. He said he never felt that the seven years in the countryside were wasted because he would carry a book with him when herding sheep on the hillside, and he would pull out his dictionary to learn new words when taking breaks from farm work in the field. Knowledge is gained little by little, and just like that, he made use of the time there to build a solid foundation for future studies. In the many years since, reading has always been an important part in Xi Jinping's life and work. His fondness for reading never changed, no matter how busy work gets, even after he became China's top leader. Xi Jinping says reading is an important source of knowledge and wisdom, and can keep our mind active and cultivate our virtues. Having read extensively, Xi Jinping has a very long reading list. On his bookshelves are collections about traditional cultures from all over the world, Marxist-Leninist classics, and also various reference books, among others. Xi Jinping cherishes traditional Chinese culture dearly and is well-read in ancient Chinese classics such as the Analects of Confucius, Records of the Grand Historian. The Spring and Autumn Annals and Comprehensive Mirror for Aid in Government. To him, culture plays a unique and irreplaceable role in the governance of China, as rich philosophical ideas, humanitarian spirit, values, and moral norms all help broaden one's way of thinking in state governance. Xi Jinping also seeks to use wisdom passed down from history in governing China. Saying that the answers to many questions today can be found in history, he once said, "History helps us understand the failures and successes of the past and learn lessons from the rise and fall of states." Xi Jinping also enjoyed reading world classics and still remembers vividly what he read in his younger days. 
While living in Liangjiahe village in early 1970s, Xi Jinping read Karl Marx's Das Kapital three times, comparing different versions of the book by different translators and taking copious amount of notes under the dim light of a kerosene lamp. He could even remember details from the book's foreword, postscript, and annotations. Xi Jinping said people in his generation were deeply influenced by Russian classics. He enjoyed *A Hero of Our Time* by Mikhail Lermontov, *War and Peace* by Leo Tolstoy, as well as *And Quiet Flows the Dawn* by Mikhail Sholokhov. He was also very inspired by reading *What Is to Be Done* by Nikolai Chernyshevsky. He is also familiar with American writers, including Walt Whitman, Mark Twain, and Jack London, among others. He is especially fond of works by Ernest Hemingway. On his visit to Cuba, Xi Jinping set aside time to visit the breakwater in Kojima, where Hemingway wrote the book *The Old Man and the Sea*, and ordered a mojito, which was Hemingway's favorite drink, in the bar that Hemingway frequented. He said he just wanted to feel for himself what was on Hemingway's mind and what the place was like as he wrote those stories. Xi Jinping believes it's important to get a deep understanding of the cultures and civilizations that are different from one's own. During overseas visits, readings of the classics often came up in his talks and conversations. In Germany, Xi Jinping recalled the old days when he had walked 15 kilometers over the hills to borrow a copy of Faust by Johann Wolfgang von Goethe. In France. He talked about Voltaire, and in India about Rabindranath Tagore. In October of 2015, Xi Jinping delivered a speech in London during his state visit to the UK, in which he recalled how Shakespeare's works had stirred his thoughts about life in his youth. I left Beijing and farmed in the village in northern part of China's Shanxi Province when I was almost 16. I spent seven youthful years there. In those years, I tried so many ways to find works of William Shakespeare. As a young man, I kept thinking about the question, "To be or not to be?" In the years when I lived on the barren Louis Plateau of northern Shanxi. Finally, I made up my mind to devote myself to serving my motherland and its people. Xi Jinping believes that literature and art are the best way for different countries and nations to understand and communicate with each other, and civilizations become more vibrant and enriched through mutual learning and exchanges. Xi Jinping has also been a prolific writer since he was young and has written volumes of poems, essays, and editorials. In 1985, 32-year-old Xi Jinping went to Xiamen City in southeast China's Fujian Province to serve as deputy mayor. In his spare time, he often hosted journalists, writers, and young intellectuals for chats and talks about art and literature. He also shared with them his own writings. On one occasion, they found out that Xi Jinping had even written a film script, which was later published in six episodes in a local newspaper in Xiamen from May to June in 
When working as secretary of the CPC Zhejiang Provincial Committee, Xi Jinping started a column in Zhejiang Daily Newspaper and published a total of 232 short commentaries under the pen name of Zhexin. These commentaries were written in a plain but trenchant style about social problems. Over the years, Xi Jinping often refers to the classics in his speeches and articles, both at home and abroad. In July of 2018, Xi Jinping published an article in the local media of South Africa ahead of his state visit to the country, in which he quoted Nelson Mandela to express his confidence in the revitalization of South Africa and the whole African continent. The African rebirth is now more than an idea. Its seeds are being sown in the regional communities we are busy building and in the continent as a whole. In March of 2019, Xi Jinping published an article in the French newspaper La Figaro, in which he quoted the Chinese proverb, "A journey of a thousand miles begins with the first step," and French writer Victor Hugo saying, "That little time is enough to change all things, to express confidence in greater success for China and France at a new historical starting point." There are many more such examples. People familiar with Xi Jinping were impressed by his knowledge in literature and art. Lin Bing once worked with Xi Jinping in the municipal government of Fuzhou. He said Xi Jinping could quote classics with such ease and fluency, as if the words were just at his fingertips. Chen Chengmao, another former colleague of Xi Jinping in Fuzhou, was quite impressed with Xi Jinping's depth in critical thinking and his ability to aptly express what he learned. Chen said he had a background in economics, but he still couldn't quite match Xi Jinping's insight on economic issues, because Xi Jinping could cite from a wide range of resources to explain things very thoroughly. Xi Jinping once said. Learning is a path of inheritance for a civilization, a ladder for individual growth, a way for a party to solidify its foundation, and a necessity for the flourishing of a nation. To him, reading and learning are not just about individual growth, but also about the progress and development of a party, a country, and its people. Leading China on its path forward. Xi Jinping says China will always remain a country devoted to learning. No matter how well it develops, China will learn from the outside world in a modest manner, remain open and inclusive, and embrace mutual learning and exchanges with other countries. With this episode, we wrap up the podcast series "Stories of Xi Jinping," which shares Xi Jinping's life stories and his experiences while working at different levels of the government across China, and how his leadership and thinking on governance gradually took shape. Thank you for listening. Takeaway Chinese, where you can take some Chinese away and experience progress day by day. Takeaway Chinese, we will promise you a difference. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Round.
table. Coming to you live from Beijing. From Beijing. Round table. Round table. Round table. Connecting China and the world. We bring you fun and timely discussions about what's affecting our lives everywhere, every day. Tune in to Round Table, where the East meets the West, and understanding is the goal. From north to south, east to west, people in China are chasing their dreams and leaving their mark. Want to know how they beat the odds and made a difference? Footprints brings you the true life stories of their journeys. 